Hello, and welcome again to At Length with Steve Scher, a podcast where we take a little time to talk to authors about the big ideas they are grappling with in their books. This season of the podcast is supported by Town Hall, and you know, there are shorter excerpts from some of these interviews that I do with Ginny Palmer for the Town Hall podcast in the moment. Check that out wherever good podcasts are sold. Of course, they're not sold. Some people give away some of their money. They are philanthropists. They probably see themselves as doing good. Are they? Through their wealth, philanthropists exercise power influencing society. Is that fair? As it is currently set up, Rob Reich says it isn't. Reich, spelled R-E-I-C-H but pronounced Reich, maybe so as not to be confused with the former labor secretary, He's a professor of political science and faculty co-director for the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford. He's written Just Giving, Why Philanthropy is Failing Democracy and How It Can Do Better. Rob Reich will be talking about the cons and pros of philanthropy with Jeff Rakes, co-founder of the Rakes Foundation and one-time CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This town hall event takes place at the Impact Hub on 2nd Avenue in downtown Seattle, Wednesday, November 28th at 7.30. Now, by the way, this podcast, I had a little problem with packets as they were being delivered, so the audio has a few electronic glitches in it. If only there was some institution that would give a lot of money to pay for improving our internet connections. Maybe government could do that, but it doesn't seem to have enough money. That's right. All part of the same question about where money comes from and what government is doing when it gives so much money in the form of tax breaks to foundations. The etymological meaning of philanthropy is love of humanity. The concept's been around a long time. Social norms from political laws, however, determine how philanthropies influence politics and culture. Corporate type called a private foundation or a community foundation or a family foundation or a 501c3 public charity or a 501c4 social welfare organization. These are not um, time immemorial organizational forms. These are just the product of the laws we have in the United States. And we could organize our philanthropic activity in completely different ways if we wished to. So the project of the book is in many respects to examine not what it is that individuals do philanthropically, but how it is that we collectively organize the practice of philanthropy, which gives it a different form and shape in different societies. I understand that this is... um part of your academic work, you know, you are the co-director of the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. But uh, what prompted your uh, interest or even passion? It it was perhaps um, not surprisingly, it was a personal uh, experience that prompted me initially to start thinking about this as a scholar. About uh, 10 10 years ago, my kids were just becoming um, um, of the age to go to school. And I live here in in Silicon Valley and in the peninsula. And I had the um, unexpected experience of registering my kids for the local public schools and then receiving a notice on the first day of school that there was a local education foundation and that I had an expected but voluntary contribution to make to the local education foundation of more than $1,000. And the reasons that were given to me were, you know, we, the school district needed to raise private funds to supplement the insufficient 
public funding in California, which of course is a sensible um, you know, view and a sensible attitude. And I decided that I would try to find out uh, the answer to the question that seemed um, obvious to ask, namely, well, what happens when wealthy suburbs like Palo Alto can raise a lot more philanthropic money to supplement the public school funding than poorer places can. We will have growing inequities between school districts based upon wealth that um, seemed problematic. And then on top of that, I discovered, which I didn't know, that these local education foundations that raised this money or the PTA or PTO, that these are tax exempt nonprofit groups so that when the local you know, millionaire made a $50,000 donation to the local public school, it was a tax deductible gift on top of it. So federal policy was exacerbating existing inequalities. And we had a good example of charity that wasn't directed at the disadvantaged, but in fact was providing assistance to those who are already quite advantaged. And I thought I should try to understand, well, why do we have tax deductions for, for charity? Why, why, why is charity defined as loosely as it is in the United States so that your local education foundation counts in the same way from a tax perspective as a gift to the soup kitchen. Did you come up with a good answer of why we have these tax deductions? There is no good rational answer that the project of giving money away, as we said at the start, is an um, time immemorial one. And you couldn't have a tax advantage for charitable giving until you first had an income tax, a personal income tax. So that only came into existence in the United States in the um, early part of World War One. And at that time, you know, the Carnegies and the Rockefellers of the world had already set up their big foundations and there was no tax advantage for doing so because there was no income tax. And then the rules changed along the way. Um, Congress just added uh, all kinds of additions and accretions and modifications to the you know, laws of nonprofits. And every couple of years they change anyway. So we have, uh, you know, a kind of, you know, a riverbed that has had slow growth and accretion over the years with different layers, with no overall rational structure to it. Just to stay historically for a moment, Rockefeller in yep. particular wanted to set up this foundation, a huge foundation, considering uh, the amount of money he had at his disposal back when the American economy was a little smaller. And what were the arguments that people were making, even preceding Rockefeller, philosophers like Mills, and also people uh, around the time that Rockefeller wanted to put his foundation in place, from people like Taft and Roosevelt and Louis Brandeis, who you write about? Right. We live in an era right now in which the biggest philanthropists among us are usually treated with a certain form of celebrity, and there's an attitude of uh, gratitude to them for undertaking these philanthropic projects. I tell the story about the creation of the Rockefeller Foundation to illustrate how only 100 years ago, social attitudes were much different. At the time that the Rockefeller Foundation was created, uh, first of all, Rockefeller had amassed an enormous fortune, and he decided that he wanted to establish a general purpose foundation, not a narrow purpose, and that he would give money away to other organizations rather than creating organizations of his own to do work. And he wanted to get a, a kind of official stamp of approval. So he had to seek an actual bill in Congress that would authorize the creation of the Rockefeller Foundation. Rockefeller and his advisors went off to, to D.C. to try to lobby on, on behalf of its creation. And they met with enormous criticism and skepticism in D.C. and indeed elsewhere around the country in the media where people complained that Rockefeller uh, had been a corrupt businessman himself, that he was a 
a union breaker, that he had uh, you know, uh, created his wealth in some illegitimate way. The sitting president, as you mentioned, uh, Taft, uh, complained about the proposal to create the Rockefeller Foundation, that, it, that the, the bill to create the Rockefeller Foundation was nothing less than a bill to incorporate Mr. Rockefeller himself. And other people were less critical of Rockefeller the man and more critical of the idea of a big foundation. Several people testified in Congress that it was uh, a menace to the welfare of society or repugnant to the whole idea of democracy to create a foundation. And the reason behind that, which seems lost to us today, is that wealthy people, when they create philanthropic entities, are exercising um, a kind of power within democracy. What kind of power is that? Well, it's to take your private resources, your private assets, and to direct them for public influence. And foundations in that respect are virtually, by definition, a plutocratic voice in a democratic society. And why it would seem to be a welcome thing um, to people in the 1910s when Rockefeller was creating it was not obvious. And we moved on a long distance in the past hundred years to now just celebrating our greatest philanthropists um, rather than directing scrutiny uh, at them. I want to discuss in my book, and the thing I'm keen to discuss in public as well, is to try to shift the attitude that we have to our biggest philanthropists from uncritical gratitude to scrutiny and to want to ensure that from the standpoint of the general welfare of society, that the power exercised by our biggest philanthropists is to benefit democracy rather than to be self-interested or, in fact, to undermine democratic processes like the equal voice of citizens in crafting public policy. Well, we have come to a, have a country where money is equated with speech and that money is uh, a powerful tool for those who have it. Uh, is it inherently, therefore, undemocratic? Not on its own. No, I don't think that's the case. And part of part of the project of the book is to try to um, show how it is that public policies and social norms can be changed so that philanthropy can serve rather than subvert democracy. And I think there are many ways in which uh, the practice of philanthropy would be vastly improved from the standpoint of democracy if we were to change some of our public policies. So let me give you an example of one. You mentioned John Stuart Mill before. So of course he was writing um, in an era in the 19th century before Rockefeller uh, had created Standard Oil and created his foundation. And John Stuart Mill was especially concerned to show why the idea of a perpetual charitable trust or, or, or a perpetual foundation was deeply injurious or completely opposed to the healthy idea of a society. Why should the preferences of a dead man um, um, be imposed upon future generations? So among the policies that I uh, aim to promote in the book is to get rid of now the default legal practice in the United States, which is that if you create a private foundation, it is default organized to exist in perpetuity. I think perpetuity is too long a time horizon for the preferences of dead people um, to reign supreme within the, uh, the foundation. Doing away with perpetuity would help um, diminish that uh, project. You write, the post-World War II rise of professionally run nonprofit organizations may have contributed to the calcification of civil society, diminished civic engagement, 
and a decline in social capital production. That is a pretty harsh judgment. Do you yeah. think you can prove it? Is yeah, it true? Right. Yeah, well, I think there, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that this is exactly what's happened. So on the one hand, we have had um, the creation of enormous numbers of nonprofit organizations, enormous numbers of foundations since World War II. And yet we see a decline in civic engagement. We see a decline in social trust. And the reason that some social scientists think that this is the case is that the kind of civil society that supports democracy is the face-to-face -face engagement of people with each other to engage in projects that they do collaboratively or they do together. It's not a checkbook writing civil society where you know the, the Sierra Club asks me to become a member and membership consists in sending an annual check to the Sierra Club for the professionals in the organization then to advocate whatever their positions are. It's actually, the PTA and the PTO in schools is a good example of this. Um, PTAs and PTOs typically operate by actually having monthly meetings, and there's a federated structure that makes them um, sort of funnel up um, to a, you know, a kind of central system where there's some coordination, or the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts is another good example. We experience our membership in those organizations not only by making donations, but by showing up and doing things together. And that's the kind of civil society that supports democracy. We need more of it. Well, we got a whole bunch of rich people with a whole bunch of money, and they want to spend it on something, and they feel they have the right to spend it on their own political and social notions. Do they in any way contribute to democracy under this current structure? They can, depending on the kinds of things they wish to do. But I think the thing I'd point out right at the start is for the person who says, well, look, this is my money and uh, no one else should have any say in what I want to do with it. So if I want to use it to buy things, that's my decision. If I want to use it to give it away to support whatever cause I want, that's also my, just a decision for me to make. And you know, part of what I want to respond to that is, well, if philanthropy is a tax subsidy subsidized activity, it gives us all a stake in the decisions that individuals make about how they give their money away. So there's this example I use from the book in which when George Soros was setting up his big philanthropic entity called the Open Society Project or Open Society Institute, he hired a staff. They were trying to decide what the program areas were going to be in the, in the foundation. And then they were you know, about to launch publicly. And there was some disagreement amongst the staff and George Soros about exactly what the final decisions would be about the program areas. And so this story goes, George Soros tried to end this discussion by saying, well, look, everyone, um, this is my money here at the foundation, and so we're going to do it my way. And one of the junior people that he hired spoke up and said, well, actually, Mr. Soros, about 40% of the money in the foundation would be in the U.S. Treasury if you hadn't given it to the foundation. So I think that other people should have some say, too. And, um, you know, allegedly the next week that guy was fired. But the, the story reveals the interest that we all have, not just in what philanthropists do because they're exercising power, but because we collectively are subsidizing their activity. So, you know, I think an honest accounting of philanthropy is that it's not the exercise of someone to give their own money away. It's the collective subsidizing of the exercise of someone's liberty. 
And if someone really wants to say, well, this is only my decision, then one initial response would be to say, well, then don't do it in a tax advantaged way. Get rid of the tax advantages. And then maybe you can make the point that this is really just my decision to make. $50 billion lost to the uh, Treasury of the U.S. in 2016, you wrote, through these tax advantages. You also write plutocratic voices are amplified by a loss of tax revenue. W what is the actual tax advantage that philanthropies are able to take advantage of? Well, this is the kind of topic which usually you know, tends to put people to sleep, the kind of intricacy of tax law, but it's where the action is. I mean, the basic idea goes something like this. People get tax deductions for philanthropic or charitable contributions. And this is true of people like you and me, Stephen, as well as for the very, very wealthy. So let's just take an easy example. Um, let's say that you, you're you in a 40% tax bracket and I'm in a 20% tax bracket. So we, we, we make different amounts of money um, and you get you have a higher progressive tax rate than I do. Now let's say that each of us wants to make the identical donation to the same organization. You make a $100 contribution to the Seattle Soup Kitchen, I make a $100 contribution to the same soup kitchen. So in principle, the same social good has been produced. Identical amount of money to the identical organization. Now, that $100 donation actually costs you only $60 because when you deduct the $100 from your taxable income, the government forgives you $40 of that $100 donation from your taxes. So you pay $60 and the government forgoes $40 in tax revenue. I, by contrast, pay $80 and the government forgoes $20 of the donation. So the same donation to the same organization by people in two different parts of the tax code gives you, the wealthier person, a greater subsidy than it does me um, because of the way that the tax deductions work within a tax code. And um, thereby, the policy that we have, tax deductions for stimulating charity, serves to amplify the voice of the already wealthy. And uh, that, I think, is a big problem in the public policy framework for how philanthropy operates in the U.S. Now, you are uh, coming to a town that has some of the biggest philanthropies and philanthropists in the country right now, and it starts with the Gates Foundation. We also have um, Jeff Bezos and what he is now talking about doing, the, currently the richest man in America with, what, $150 billion. And, and we just had Paul Allen who just recently passed away. Right. Now, people will look, and I want to get into all three of these, but people talked about Paul Allen, and they said, look at what Paul Allen funded with his money. Brain research, um, space exploration, work on understanding you know, the influence of pop culture on society. That's, that's the nice way they put it for their the EMP and the, and the Mopop right. Museum. Would we get those sorts of spending otherwise and and is that f just for alan to to make the decision on because he got the tax exempt money to spend it right and i mean these 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 issues raise lots and lots of different important questions and just a couple quick uh, observations here so um paul allen jeff bezos and bill gates uh, are um, more consequential, it seems to me, in defining the landscape of northwestern uh, Washington than perhaps the governor, uh, perhaps the mayor of Seattle uh, happened to be. 
that says something important about the power of philanthropists. On top of that, uh, one of the key things to remember about philanthropy, unlike the governor or the mayor, is that if people don't like what the govern governor or mayor happen to do, well, they all stand for election and people can vote them out of office. There's no voting Paul Allen, Jeff Bezos, or Bill Gates out of their philanthropic offices. And as I said before, in fact, the foundations that they created are designed to exist in perpetuity. The governance of the foundations tends to be you know, their hand-picked family and friends. And um, you know, this is the reason why uh, critics of the Gates' education philanthropy call Bill Gates the nation's unelected school superintendent. Now, that doesn't seem to me to suggest that philanthropy is always and everywhere wrong. It suggests that what philanthropists need to do is to find a way to um, appeal to citizens for um, a certain type of legitimacy or approval of their, of their philanthropic work. And here's what I have in mind by that. The idea from my point of view would be, as Bill Gates says, and as is my view is absolutely correct, that the amount of money that he spends in the foundation for education reform is a tiny drop in the bucket of the annual public dollar spent on education. So that's you know billions and billions of dollars. And that if you exhausted the Gates Foundation entire endowment, it would be just still a tiny fraction of the amount of money spent in the United States on education in any given year. So um, philanthropists have power, but relative to the power of the government, especially in education or in healthcare or scientific research, space travel, it's, it's philanthropic uh, resources are still relatively small. So the attitude of philanthropists, it seems to me, should be to, to try to pioneer some new ideas and to undertake long time horizon experiments that then they can subject to various forms of scientific or social scientific testing. They can build an evidence base that these are good ideas. And then they could humbly present them to a public, uh, into the people of Seattle, to the people of Washington, or the people of the United States, and ask that a successful innovation be scaled up and provided to everyone, now through public dollars. Let me give one example of this in the history of philanthropy. It's one of the usual examples of the best type of philanthropy, Andrew Carnegie's creation of a library system. So the Carnegie Foundation didn't say to the United States citizens, we would like to fund local libraries. We'll fund them 100% annually in every locality in the country, and we'll do it in perpetuity. The idea was that the Carnegie, Carnegie uh, philanthropy would create little pilot experiments and see how the public library was received by citizens. Ultimately, citizens found libraries to be sufficiently important and an interesting innovation that they asked their local governments to be the main source of funds for them. So that's what I have in mind with what philanthropists can do that will support democracy rather than act against its own interests. You write it yourself about the plutocratic bias, and you even talk about how hospitals and universities account for more than half of the revenue of all nonprofit organizations in the U.S., both hospitals, universities, as well as, you say, cultural and artistic institutions can exclude people who cannot pay for the services. So right at the forefront, it seems, of what philanthropy is, is exclusion of all the people that, uh, you know, the people they don't like in uh, engaging in their operations. So we could have this idea of forward-looking, innovative foundations, but we don't really have that, do we? 
That's right. Um, what I just described is not a defense of the actual activity of, of existing foundations. It's the standard by which to assess their, their, their behavior and their operation. So how, how do actual foundations stack up against this particular vision or standard where you know, the vision is foundations should undertake long time horizon experiments in ways that public officials and, and corporations in the marketplace can't because they are harnessed to shorter time horizons. So they should undertake these long time horizon experiments and then present the successful ones um, as if they were auditioning for a stamp of approval um, from the citizens. Uh, well, uh, I think there's lots of evidence to suggest that foundations are not meeting this particular standard. And if they're not, so much the worse for the foundations themselves, and they might not deserve the privileges that attach to uh, what it means to create a foundation, might not deserve the privileges of tax deductions, might not deserve the privileges of tax exemption for the assets. Here's another way to think about this. I'm a professor at Stanford University, and professors have a very unusual institutionally um, applied or designed um, feature. I, I have tenure. So I have basically job unaccountability for life. Um, Stanford, uh, unless I break the law, um, has no just cause to fire me. And this is true for people who have tenured other universities. You might think, what could possibly justify giving people who work in universities lifelong job unaccountability. And I don't know if there's a good justification for it, but that's basically the same arrangement that endowments are, have within foundations, lifelong unaccountable performance. And in fact, it's, life, it's beyond lifelong, it's perpetual. And if there is a justification, then the kind of thing that scholars should do who have tenure is to undertake these very experimental or high risk um, efforts at research or at the pursuit of knowledge or the uh, quest for truth that we won't expect to have happen in the government or in the marketplace. And most of those efforts will fail, uh, but some, some of them will succeed. And the, the things that succeed and actually contribute to our storehouse of knowledge are really valuable things. Basic research and American universities are some of the most incredible achievements in the, the world today. And the, the good, the public good of research uh, productivity is quite high. Um, basic science, uh, technological advancement, et cetera. So that's the kind of activity I think that foundations should be in the business of funding and stimulating too. I don't mean um, giving money to research universities, although they might do that. But I have in mind this experimental, long-time horizon, you know, kind of high-risk approach to innovation and experimentation. That sounds like a moral argument. But what's the stick that you can apply? Why not take away philanthropy's tax exemption and tax deduction? If they want to give money, let them do it after they pay what everybody else pays for the services of government. Right. I think that there's some some good case to be made there that unless we have evidence that the tax incentives or tax advantages that philanthropists currently receive are essential to the production of something that's beneficial for society, then there's no good case for the tax advantages, and in particular for the wealthiest among us. In my limited conversations with people who are as wealthy as Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Paul Allen, um, they're not really motivated by the tax incentives at that point because they have such extraordinary wealth. They, they, they can't possibly 
privately consume the billions and billions of dollars that they have. And so they're motivated to try to return some of that wealth to society. And it's not a tax advantage they're looking for. It's a, a way to, to um, provide some social benefit for all of this wealth. And I, I want to see evidence that the tax benefits are necessary for the production of something that's socially beneficial. And I'd say the jury is out on that. And um, we need much more social scientific research to understand whether or not the tax deduction is something that's socially valuable. I'll add here, for people who are wondering, um, that sounds ridiculous. Of course, the tax advantage is valuable. We'll take the, the mortgage interest deduction, which is universally seen by economists as among the most wasteful tax giveaways to the real estate industry and only serves to increase the size and cost of the houses that people who can afford them will buy. There's no good evidence to suggest that the mortgage interest deduction um, contributes to home ownership in any meaningful way, um, according to economists. And if that's true, also about charity, that if we eliminated the tax incentives for giving entirely, we would get almost virtually the same type of charitable behavior, well, then we should stop losing money from the Treasury and nothing about the world will be changed. Sure, but isn't there also sort of a, a political notion? All the rich people say, look at all the money I'm giving away. Uh, look, at, look at the pledge I've signed, uh, for example, Gates and Buffett and Allen, to give away my wealth. Doesn't that justify, don't you feel better about the fact that I have this foundation in perpetuity? Because on my personal wealth, I'm going to give it away. I mean, there's a political equation here that sort of influences people's perspective, isn't there? Right. But, I mean, um, we have to keep in mind here that the comparison is not to if they just kept the money for themselves, what good would happen in the world? Or if they put it in a foundation, what good would happen in the world? If they keep the money to themselves under the current regime, the tax policy regime, they have to pay tax on it. So here's another example. It's an example about my own university, Stanford University. So the largest single gift made in, I think it was 2016, was $400 million given by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, to Stanford University to fund um, what are now called the Knight-Hennessy Fellowships. These are uh, graduate fellowships for students modeled after the Rhodes Scholarships. And one of the writers for um, Vox.com, um, every time uh, someone gives a multi-hundred million dollar gift to a wealthy university, um, this guy's name is Dylan Matthews, he writes an article that's called, For the Love of God, People, Stop Giving Money Away to um, Wealthy Universities. So he wrote of Phil Knight's gift in 2016 that it was the worst philanthropic gift of the year. And the reason was that the world would be better off, he wrote, if Phil Knight had taken the $400 million, put it in his backyard, and set it on fire. <laughs> and the, the attitude that most people have to hearing that is, that's ridiculous. How could the world possibly be better off if Phil Knight had burned $400 million? And the answer is, well, he would have owed taxes on those $400 million. So whatever the tax burden that's due on him, let's just call it, I don't know, say he pays 25% taxation on, on that, $100 million would have been in the Treasury. And Dylan Matthews' argument is that the world would be better off with the benefits of $100 million to the Treasury than to giving Stanford University $400 million for a bunch of graduate fellowships modeled after the Rhodes Scholarship. Now, we could debate whether that's true, but the point here is, if you burn your money, the world might actually be a better place in virtue of you owing taxes on that. 
under the current public policy um, treatment that philanthropy or private consumption happens to have. Of course, the current uh, overarching political argument from the people in power these days and the people who, for the most part, as you write, have conservative viewpoints on politics is that government's a failure and that we shouldn't be giving government any more money. The logical conclusion of that is we end up with a feudal society where aristocrats dole out their their money to uh, those they think worthy. So would you get rid of the tax exemption and the tax breaks for foundations if, if you could? I, and I don't think we could because of all the political lobbying involved, but would you? Would that make a better, more democratic society? Well, it wouldn't do it on its own. Um, um, people who complained about um, uh, American democracy in 2018 are right to say that it's deeply dysfunctional. The levels of polarization we have in the United States, the, the incivility in our political discourse, the lack of capacity for compromise. Um, there are many, many problems with American democracy right now. Um, but my point here is, is that the appropriate attitude that we should take toward the dysfunction of our government is to engage in, in um, the world as a citizen, not as, as a philanthropist. I mean, when people say, look how broken the government is, that's the equivalent of saying, look how broken we are as citizens. The government is, in many respects, us. We authorize the government what to do, and we can change it collectively if we want to do so. Or let's put it this way. Here's one other way to think about um, the social attitudes we have about big philanthropists now. Wealthy people among us seek to do everything they can legally to diminish their tax burdens as low as they can possibly go. So, you know, famously, these corporations uh, uh, in Silicon Valley pay almost no corporate taxes and people do everything they can so that people like Warren Buffett have a lower tax rate than their secretaries. After diminishing their taxes, which is to say withdrawing as much as possible from their contribution as a citizen to our collective project as democratic members of society, they then announce that they want to create a foundation because there's so much that's broken and they want personally now to distribute a bunch of benefits to people solely at their own discretion. And having withdrawn from the you know, playing field as a citizen and announced themselves as a private philanthropist, they then ask the rest of the citizens to bend over in gratitude to them for this. And that seems to me to miss the, the bigger picture, which is that we, we should improve our political processes so that the need for philanthropy is not designed to bypass the dysfunction of democratic government, but in fact to support and enhance democratic institutions in the way I was describing before by undertaking these long time horizon projects. We shouldn't celebrate philanthropists because they say they're smarter than the broken government. We should celebrate philanthropists who say that their philanthropy is designed to support and indeed to enhance democratic ideals and democratic institutions. And we have too few of those people today. Who are the philanthropists that you point to as models? Yeah, um, well, I'll give you a couple ideas. I mean, in general, I think some of the things that the Gates Foundation does domestically uh, um, are interesting models. I would change the attitude that I sometimes hear from people at the Gates Foundation about how uh, they wish to bypass um, government itself in creating new uh, new models or that they, they want to find a way to impose upon governments a bunch of their own ideas. I think there should be more of a, a humility attached to the philanthropic innovation that the Gates Foundation undertakes. I also like, for example, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation based in Houston, Texas, which uh, works on public policy concerns 
and tries in various ways to improve the political systems we have for the benefit of all people. Now, they have their own ideas about how those should be improved, um, but they're transparent about what those, those ideas are and, and invite the scrutiny and criticism of other people um, in carrying them out. So they're um, attempting very forthrightly to try to uh, enhance democracy rather than to bypass it. I was looking at the spending the Koch Foundation was doing on political campaigns this year, about uh, $300 million to help Republican candidates stay in control of the U.S. House. Is the Koch Foundation a philanthropic arm or is it uh, in a different category of uh, foundations? Yeah, I mean, your your question reveals one of the one of I think the confusions that uh, we have today about philanthropy. So when the Koch brothers give away all this money to help people get elected, their preferred people get elected. That's not um, an act of philanthropy. That's political giving, and it's not treated um, under the law as a philanthropic act. Anybody that runs a foundation can't give money away for the electoral chances of any particular candidate. The Koch brothers do have a foundation, and they tend to support things, to the best of my knowledge, like conservative think tanks or um, cultural uh, institutions in New York City. But when they give money away to candidates, they're doing something in their capacity as political donors, not philanthropists. Now, I happen to think, as I think many other people do as well, that uh, post-Citizens United World gives too much power to the wealthy to influence our, our electoral systems, our, uh, our political candidates. So I'd want to completely overhaul the way in which political giving works in the United States. But as I say, that's not a question about philanthropy. That's about campaign finance. Yes. And the mere confusion of the two, the idea that we think think of the Koch brothers as donors in the same way we think about someone who's a philanthropist, reveals how confused our discourse is about this. Um, we really have to separate the two. Political giving and philanthropic giving, two different things, and important to have different policies for the two. Yes, but doesn't the fact that the Koch brothers support all these different uh, think tanks and, and um, philosophical organizations and donate money to Public television aren't they advantaged by their um, by their tax exempt status for the foundation in order to increase both their profile and their ability to give to the political side? That's true. That's true of everyone else who takes advantages uh, who takes advantage of these tax incentives as well. But for, again, the core problem there is the campaign finance system, which allows our our politics to be subject to the whims of the wealthy on the left and on the right. Not This is not just a Koch brother problem. This is a Tom Steyer and George Soros problem as well. Um, I, I have my own political positions, but the objections I have to our campaign finance system um, don't involve criticizing only the Koch brothers. It involves criticizing the fact that the wealthy get a privileged status to participate in democracy that the rest of us don't have. You end this by saying you'd like this book to uh, contribute to the notion that we have to talk about this more. We have to have political theories of philanthropy. You're going to come to Seattle. You're going to be on stage with Jeff Rakes, who both worked to help set up the Gates Foundation, has his own foundation among many uh, wealthy people, smaller foundations are being set up. Can you tell all these wealthy people setting up their smaller foundations, can you, can you say, I have the facts behind me that says, look, you're really not doing that, that much good for society with these small foundations. Better that you use your money in different ways, like 
pay taxes? It's an invitation to a conversation. So um, one of the questions I want to ask Jeff Rakes or ask anyone who's in the audience is, if we think about philanthropy as an exercise of power, an exercise of power that's unaccountable, not very transparent, donor-directed, um, by default perpetual and tax-advantaged, a, a plutocratic voice in a democratic society, I want to ask the philanthropists in the audience, why is that a good thing for democracy? Um, the book I've written develops a set of answers to that question, um, maybe answers that won't be shared by others, uh, but I'm interested to hear from the philanthropists themselves how they think uh, exercising this philanthropic power is meant to support democracy rather than to corrode it. When I write at the end of the book that I'm eager for a public conversation about how to think about the role of philanthropy, I'm as interested in uh, stimulating that conversation rather than dictating the conclusion to it. And uh, I, I welcome the ideas of many other people about how to think about improving the state of charity and philanthropy in, in the United States in order that we improve our democracy. Professor Rob Reich, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. Take care. Bye. That's Rob Reich. He is co-director of the Stanford Center on Philanthropy and Civil Society at Stanford University. He's at Town Hall Wednesday, November 28th, 2018 at 7.30, taking place at the Impact Hub. That's on 2nd Avenue. You can check out the website, Town Hall Seattle, for more information. You can also go to my website, The House of Podcasts. You can just search for At Length with Steve Scher. That'll get you there. And there's links to the Impact Hub. Also, uh, links to an annotation of this interview in case you don't want to spend the whole 40 minutes listening to it. But I hope you do. Thank you for listening to five minutes or 30 or 40 minutes of these interviews. I appreciate you taking the time. Maybe uh, go on over to where you get your podcasts and leave a review. It would be great to let people know that this podcast is out there and that you are enjoying it. Talk to you again. Thanks a lot.